Part 1, Sections 35-53 to 53 of All Things Are Possible by Lev Shestov, translated by S. S. Kotelyansky, 1888-1955. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Part 1, Section 35 Inveterate Wickedness Heretics were often most bitterly persecuted for their least digression from accepted belief. It was just their obstinacy in trifles that irritated the righteous to madness. Why can they not yield on so trifling a matter? They cannot possibly have serious cause for opposition. They only want to grieve us, to spite us. So the hatred mounted up, piles of faggots and torture machines appeared against obdurate wickedness. 36. I do not know where I came across the remark, whether in Tolstoy or Turgenev, that those who have been subjected to trial in the courts of justice always acquire a particularly noble expression of face. Although logic does so earnestly recommend caution in the forming of contradictory conclusions, come what may I shall for once risk a deduction. A noble expression of face is a sign that a man has been under trial, but certainly not a trial for political crime, for theft or bribe-taking. 37. The most important and significant revelations come into the world naked, without a wordy garment. To find words for them is a delicate, difficult business, a whole art. Stupidities and banalities, on the contrary, appear at once in ready-made apparel, gaudy even if shabby, so that they are ready straight away to be presented to the public. 38. A strange impatience has taken possession of Russian writers lately. They are all running a race after the ultimate words. They have no doubt that the ultimate words will be attained. The question is, who will lay hold of them first? 39. The appearance of Socrates on the philosophic horizon is hailed by historians as the greatest event. Morals were beginning to work loose. Athens was threatened with ruin. Socrates' mission was to put an end to the violent oscillation in moral judgments which extreme individualism on the one hand and the relativism of the sophists on the other had set up. The great teacher did all he could. He gave up his usual occupations and his family life. He took no thought for the morrow. He taught, taught, taught. Simple people or eminent, wise or foolish, ignorant or learned. Notwithstanding, he did not save the country. Under Pericles, Athens flourished without wisdom, or at least independently of Socratic wisdom. After Pericles, in spite of the fact that the Socratic teaching found such a genius as Plato to continue it, Athens steadily declined, and Aristotle is already master to the son of Philip of Macedon. Whence it is obvious that the wisdom of Socrates had not saved the country, and as this had been its chief object, it had failed in its object and therefore was not worthy of the exaggerated respect it received. It is necessary to find some justification for philosophy other than country-saving. This would be the easiest thing in the world. But altogether we must give up the favorite device of the philosophers of looking to find in the well-being of society the raison d'etre of philosophy. At the best, the trick was a risky one. As a rule, wisdom goes one way, society the other they are artificially connected. It is public orators who have trained both the philosophers and the masses 
to regard as worthy of attention only those considerations which have absolutely everything on their side social utility morality even metaphysical wisdom why so much is it not sufficient if some new project will prove useful why try to get the sanction of morality and metaphysics nay once the laws of morality are autonomous and once ideas are allowed to stand above the empirical needs of mankind it is impossible to balance ideas and morality with social requirements or even with the salvation of the country from ruin periat mundus fiat philosophia if athens was ruined because of philosophy philosophy is not impugned so the autonomous thinker should hold but de facto a thinker does not like quarrelling with his country forty when a writer has to express an idea whose foundation he has not been able to establish and which yet is dear to his heart so that he earnestly wishes to secure its general acceptance as a rule he interrupts his exposition as if to take breath and makes a small or at times a serious digression during which he proves the invalidity of this or that proposition often without any reference to his real theme having triumphantly exposed one or more absurdities and thus acquired the aplomb of a solid expert he returns to his proper task calculating that now he will inspire his reader with greater confidence his calculation is perfectly justified the reader is afraid to attack such a skilled dialectician and prefers to agree rather than to risk himself in argument not even the greatest intellects particularly in philosophy disdain such stratagems the idealists for example before expounding their theories turn and rend materialism the materialists we remember at one time did the same with the idealists and achieved a vast success forty one theories of sequence and consequence are binding only upon the disciples not upon the masters fathers of great ideas tend to be very careless about their progeny giving very little heed to their future career the offspring of one and the same philosopher frequently bear such small resemblance to one another that it is impossible to discern the family connection conscientious disciples wasting away under the arduous effort to discover that which does not exist are brought to despair of their task having got an inkling of the truth concerning their difficulty they give up the job forever they cease their attempt at reconciling glaring contradictions but then they only insist the harder upon the necessity for studying the philosophers studying them minutely circumstantially historically philologically even so the history of philosophy is born which now is taking the place of philosophy certainly the history of philosophy may be an exact science since by means of historical research it is often possible to decide what exactly a certain philosopher did mean and in what sense he employed his peculiar terms and seeing that there have been a fair number of philosophers the business of clearing them all up is a respectable undertaking and deserves the name of a science for a good translation or a commentary on the chief works of kant a man may be given the degree of doctor of philosophy and henceforth recognized as one who is initiated in the profundities of the secrets of the universe then why ever should anybody think out new systems or even write them forty two the raptures of creative activity empty words invented by men 
who never had an opportunity of judging from their own experience, but who derived their conclusions syllogistically. If a creation gives us such delight, what must the creator himself experience? Usually the creator feels only vexations. Every creation is created out of the void. At the best, the maker finds himself confronted with a formless, meaningless, usually obstinate and stiff matter which yields reluctantly to form, and he does not know how to begin. Every time a new thought is gendered, so often must that new thought, which for the moment seems so brilliant and fascinating, be thrown aside as worthless. Creative activity is a continual progression from failure to failure, and the condition of the creator is usually one of uncertainty, mistrust, and shattered nerves. The more serious and original the task which a man sets himself, the more tormenting is the self-misgiving. For this reason, even men of genius cannot keep up the creative activity to the last. As soon as they have acquired their technique, they begin to repeat themselves, well aware that the public willingly endures the monotony of a favorite, even finds virtue in it. Every connoisseur of art is satisfied if he recognizes in a new work the accepted manner of the artist. Few realize that the acquiring of a manner is the beginning of the end. Artists realize well enough and would be glad to be rid of their manner, which seems to them a hackneyed affair. But this requires too great a strain on their powers, new torments, doubts, new groping. He who has once been through the creative raptures is not easily tempted to try again. He prefers to turn out work according to the pattern he has evolved, calmly and securely, assured of his results. Fortunately, no one except himself knows that he is not any longer a creator. What a lot of secrets there are in the world, and how easy it is to keep one's secret safe from indiscreet glances. 43. A writer works himself up to a pitch of ecstasy, otherwise he does not take up his pen. But ecstasy is not so easily distinguished from other kinds of excitement, and as a writer is always in haste to write, he has rarely the patience to wait, but at the first promptings of animation begins to pour himself forth so in the name of ecstasy we are offered such quantities of banal by no means ecstatic effusions particularly easy it is to confound with ecstasy that very common sort of springtime liveliness which in our language is well named calf rapture and calf rapture is much more acceptable to the public than true inspiration or genuine transport it is easier more familiar forty four a school axiom logical skepticism refutes itself since the denial of the possibility of positive knowledge is already an affirmation but in the first place skepticism is not bound to be logical for it has no desire whatever to gratify that dogma which raises logic to the position of law secondly where is the philosophic theory which if carried to its extreme would not destroy itself therefore why is more demanded from scepticism than from other systems especially from scepticism which honestly avows that it cannot give that which all other theories claim to give forty five the aristotelian logic which forms the chief component in modern logic arose as we know as a result of the permanent controversies which were such sport to the greeks in order to argue it is indeed necessary to have a common ground in other words to agree about the rules of the game 
but in our day dialectic tournaments like all other bouts of contention no longer attract people thus logic may be relegated to the background forty six in gogol's portrait the artist despairs at the thought that he has sacrificed art for the sake of life in ibsen's drama when we dead awaken there is also an artist who has become world famous and who repents that he has sacrificed his life to art now choose which of the two ways of repentance do you prefer forty seven man is often quite indifferent to success whilst he has it but once he loses his power over people he begins to fret and vice versa forty eight turgenev's insarov strikes the imagination of elena because he is a man preparing for battle she prefers him to shubin the painter or to bersenyov the savant since ancient days women have looked with favour on warriors rather than on peaceful men had turgenev invested that idea with less glamour he would probably not have become the ideal of the young who does not get a thrill from elena and her elect who has not felt the fascination of turgenev's women and yet all of them give themselves to the strong male with such superior people as with beasts the males fight with each other the woman looks on and when it is over she submits herself the slave of the conqueror forty nine a caterpillar is transformed into a chrysalis and for a long time lives in a warm quiet little world perhaps if it had human consciousness it would declare that that world was the best perhaps the only one possible to live in but there comes a time when some unknown influence causes the little creature to begin the work of destruction if other caterpillars could see it how horrified they would be revolted to the bottom of their soul by the awful work in which the insurgent is engaged they would call it immoral godless they would begin to talk about pessimism scepticism and so on to destroy what has cost such labour to construct why what is wrong with this complete cosy comfortable little world to keep it intact they call to their aid sacred morality and the idealistic theory of knowledge nobody cares that the caterpillar has grown wings that when it has nibbled its old nest away it will fly out into space nobody gives a thought to this wings that is mysticism self-nibbling that is actuality those who are engaged in such actuality deserve torture and execution there are plenty of prisons and voluntary hangmen on the bright earth the majority of books are prisons and great authors are not bad hangmen fifty nietzsche and dostoevsky seem to be typical inverted simulators if one may use the expression they imitated spiritual sanity although they were spiritually insane they knew their morbidity well enough but they exhibited their disease only to that extent where freakishness passes for originality with the sensitiveness peculiar to all who are in constant danger they never went beyond the limits the acts of the guillotine of public opinion hung over them one awkward move and the execution automatically takes place but they knew how to avoid unwarrantable moves fifty one the so-called ultimate questions troubled mankind in the world's dawn as badly as they trouble us now adam and eve wanted to know and they plucked the fruit at their risk cain whose sacrifice did not please god raised his hand against his brother and it seemed to him he committed murder in the name of justice 
in vindication of his own injured rights nobody has ever been able to understand why god preferred abel's sacrifice to that of cain in our own day salieri repeats cain's vengeance and poisons his friend and benefactor mozart according to the poem of pushkin all say there is no justice on earth but there is no justice up above this is as clear to me as a simple scale of music no man on earth can fail to recognize in these words his own tormenting doubts the outcome is creative tragedy which for some mysterious reason has been considered up till now as the highest form of human creation everything is being unriddled and explained if we compare our knowledge with that of the ancients we appear very wise but we are no nearer to solving the riddle of eternal justice than cain was progress civilization all the conquests of the human mind have brought us nothing new here like our ancestors we stand still with fright and perplexity before ugliness disease misery senility death all that the wise men have been able to do so far is to turn the earthly horrors into problems we are told that perhaps all that is horrible only appears horrible that perhaps at the end of the long journey something new awaits us perhaps but the modern educated man with the wisdom of all the centuries of mankind at his command knows no more about it than the old singer who solved universal problems at his own risk we the children of a moribund civilization we old men from our birth in this respect are as young as the first man fifty two they say it is impossible to set a bound between the eye and society naivete crusoes are to be found not only on desert islands they are there in populous cities it is true they are not clad in skins they have no dark fridays in attendance and so nobody recognizes them but surely friday and a fur jacket do not make a crusoe loneliness desertion a boundless shoreless sea on which no sail has risen for tens of years do not many of our contemporaries live in such a circumstance and are they not crusoes to whom the rest of people have become a vague reminiscence barely distinguishable from a dream fifty three to be irremediably unhappy this is shameful an irremediably unhappy person is outside the laws of the earth any connection between him and society is severed finally and since sooner or later every individual is doomed to irremediable unhappiness the last word of philosophy is loneliness end of part one section fifty three recording by expatriate in bangor maine